You guys can have a seat. We'll get preaching here in my, in my, in my prayer. Hey, my name's Kent, and I'm uh, one of the elders here. If you don't know me, it's, I know most of you guys, some of you are visiting, I know. And if you've got your Bible, my wife uh, read the passage in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look there in a few minutes, but um, I wanted to speak on something that probably is on a lot of our minds right now and has been in our country in the last several months. And I think that there was an election this past week. Am I right? Did you all vote? You exercise your right to vote? And I think we finally have a consensus on who the winner is. And no matter where you fall on this, no matter if you're celebrating this morning of the outcome of the election or you're in the dumps about it. And I'll, I'll be honest, I've talked to more people who are worried and concerned about the election, the outcome of the election, wringing their hands, whatever that means. What is that, wringing your hands? But, I mean, some of that's going on. Even uh, know of someone close to us who, um, who has spent time crying about the results of this election. And so I, I thought before I even get into the passage, it's almost like two messages today, and I'm not going to keep you forever, but uh, just a, a few words on where we are as a church and some reminders for us. Most of this, it's not going to be new to you. It's just reminders for you. So in Philippians chapter 13, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says this. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That scripture right there tells me I don't have to worry about what the future of this country is or the future of this world is. By the way, if you've read your Bible and you read to the end, you know this about our world. It does not get any better. Until Jesus comes back, it will not get better. Jesus promises us as followers of Christ, those who've been changed by Christ, and he's truly entered our life, he promises you, he guarantees you, you're going to face persecution. And so putting any hope in the government, uh, of putting any stock in it of our future is futile. God is sovereign. I could go through and I could preach a Several messages on this, the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, in complete control. And some of us, when we say that word, we might mean different things. But when I say the word sovereign, when I think about the word sovereign, it means this, complete and total, undeniable, total control. And so God is in complete control of our country. And so when I talk to someone, when I hear about people who are so upset or people who are so excited, I have a few of those people in my life as well, who are, could not be more excited about the, the results of this election. I come back to this. God's in control. And really, in the end, I can just put my trust in him. He's in complete and total control. And because of that, here's the picture in my mind that I get when I think about God's sovereignty, and specifically with this election. It's like me sitting in my backyard. We don't have a hammock, but we have uh, some trees that we could put a hammock down. We put a nice big hammock there on a nice day like this afternoon. The breeze would be blowing. I could jump in that hammock and I could put my hands, you know, like my hands like this, sit back and just let it push me like that and go, woo! God's in complete control. That's the picture I have in my head that I don't have to worry about what's going to come in the next week or the next month or the next four years. I don't have to worry about who's going to be up for election in the next four years or eight years or 12 or 16. Look how good I am at math. 20, 24. I don't have to worry about it. Because why? Because God is sovereign and he's in control. And Paul says it right there. And I could turn to a lot of other scriptures. God's in control. He's the one who puts people in power. 
He guides them. I'll read a scripture in just a minute about this. That God's in control. So no matter where you fall on this, no matter where, if you don't even care at all, you're like, why are you even talking about this? I'm so sick of this election. All that stuff. Or you're, you're celebrating or you're freaking out right now about the election. You need to remember and just come back to this. That God ultimately, ultimately, if you believe your Bible, that it's true, put those hands back in that hammock and go, woo, God's sovereign. He's in control. I don't have to worry. I mean, that is true of everything in your life, isn't it? Every single thing. Some of you have got a lot of concerns going on with family or with a health issue or your job or the future or your home, where you're going to live, all these types of things that come in our lives that are uncertainties. If you're a follower of Christ, I know it's easier said than done, but we come back and we center ourselves on the Word of God, and it's like, hey, God, you're, you're in control. And because you gave your life for me and because you live within me, and it wasn't just some generic sinner's prayer that did nothing for me and nothing in my life ever changed, but you actually changed my life and you live within me because that's true, man, I'm free to trust you. I I, I can have peace when the world, they don't even get it. They don't understand. It doesn't make sense that I don't have to worry about this or that in my life or in some election of our country. I can trust in the sovereignty of God. Second thing I want to tell you this morning is a reminder for us. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus, you already know this. The mandates that's God, that God has given you and us as followers of Christ, they've not changed, nor will they ever change. Okay? The mandates for us, just a few of them, are this, that we would know God. We would know Him, we would enjoy Him, and we would do this with Him. We would make much of Jesus in our lives. We would glorify Him to say, God, my life Unlike what the world says, live for yourself. I don't live for myself. I live for Jesus. I live for his glory. I live for his fame. The way I spend my money displays that obviously to the world. That my hope is not in this world and what I can make or all the possessions I have. It's not in my children or other family members or my job. My hope is in you. And so I'm going to, the mandate is, God, I'm going to make much of you. You want me to make much of you and glorify you because you know that the only place that's going to ever satisfy any of us is not in anything in this world. It's only in Jesus. So because we know that's true, my life is going to show it off. Jesus, you are the number one thing in my life. Number one person, you are my, there are no idols in my life. I'm going to push those aside. Jesus, you are number one. So the mandate to make much of him Know him, as Paul says in Philippians, to know him and the power of his resurrection. I'm going to know him. Boy, that mandate, just knowing him. When you start to know him, some of you know this to be true. It starts just oozing out of you. You can't help but glorify him. You can't help but make much of him because he's made such a difference in your life. You sing songs like we just sang. You can't help but say, man, glory to you, God. Look what you've done. You've been faithful all my life. So I'm going to live it out. The mandate to know him and make much of him is... Nothing's changed in the last week. Nothing about that has changed. He's sovereign. The mandate to make much of Jesus is still there. The mandate to care for orphans and widows. James 1.27 says that. that true, true religion is caring for those. So I have a mandate to be involved in that in some way? Yeah, you do as a follower of Christ. Why? Because it's on his heart. If it's on God's heart, as a follower of him, it's on my heart. Just by nature. Oh, God, and the more I get to know him, again, Paul says, to know you, God, 
the end of his life, he's saying, I want to know you. Like, he doesn't already know him yet. He, he does, but he wants to know more. The more you get to know Christ, the more your heart begins to look like his. It's a natural byproduct, isn't it? It's not, it's not even trying to. It's like, the more I get to know him, the more I begin to look like him, the more obvious it is to other people. And so through this election and all that's going on, nothing has changed. God has a heart for orphaned and vulnerable kids. He has a heart for widows. He has a heart for the outcast, the, the ones who are poor, the needy. We should be as a byproduct of our relationship with Christ. We were engaged in those things. And that's not something at a distance. It's saying, how can I be involved in what Jesus' heart is about? How do I get involved in that? And so the mandate to care for those type of people has not changed. Some of you have been here, you know this. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm about to get into that in a minute. It'll be your second sermon today. Um, we talked about last week in church um, and the week before the mandate to be salt and light in this world. That as a believer and follower of Christ, you're salt. You ever eat some food that's not salty, doesn't have any salt on it? Some of us do that because of our blood pressure. I don't need to have that much salt, but what sure does make things taste good, right? And as followers of Jesus, we're just like that in the world, man. We, we bring some, some real taste to this world. We are the light of the world. Jesus living in you, among a, can you not tell in today's, in our culture today, that this is a dark world? People backbiting, fighting. There's so much tension among everybody. And you know what I don't see? I don't see the fruit of the Spirit in our world today because they don't have the Spirit living in them. But you do, and I do. And that's not an arrogant statement. It's just the truth. The Spirit lives within you. If Jesus has changed your life, he's come into your life, then he changed your life, and he truly lives there, then it is no problem to be salt because that's what you are. That's in your essence. That's who I am. I'm salt. And I'm also light walking into a dark area. Every day we go out into our world. You go to Raising Cane's. You go to Target. Or God forbid you go to Walmart or something like that. You have to go in that store. You're walking in. Man, I'm light. I'm the light of the world walking in this dark store. True? That's the truth. It's the truth. God says the mandate for you to be salt and light. It doesn't change. It doesn't change now. It won't change in four years or eight years. Until the rest of your life, God says, hey, all the mandates that I put in place for you, they have not changed. And the last thing I want to tell you about this, the mission that God has given you and us as a a bunch of followers of Christ, as the church, that mandate has not been canceled. And the mission has not been canceled. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, y'all know this, the Great Commission. What did he say? He said, go ye therefore, make disciples of where? Oh, and thank you. Anybody else? What does it say? All nations. So it goes back to being the light of the world. God has called me as a follower of Christ. He's called me, someone who's been changed by him, to go out and say, I am on mission for him. I'm on mission with my neighbor across the street. I'm on mission with those who vote like me and those who are wrong. You catch that? Okay. That's right. You're on mission with those who know Christ. Our, our mission is to go and make disciples. That's your mission. It's not mine alone or, or Kyle's or Matt or Ryan or whoever else or Pat. 
or whoever's gifted at evangelism. Folks, that's our call. That's your call. And again, I would go back to this. It is a byproduct of a true and living, vibrant relationship with Jesus. That when I know him and I, and, I, and I understand who he is and my heart begins to change to be like him, it's no task for me to go and share Christ with somebody. It's not something that, oh, I need to remember to do that. It's top of mind. It's top of mind because I'm called as a follower of Christ, one, to go do it, but two, it's just part of who I am. It's in my DNA. It's... it's, it's God, you've so changed my life that I can't help but do this. And so the mission for you and for us as a church to be engaged in his mission around the world, to say, God, I'm here and I exist to make much of you in my life, in every area of my life, every single area, in my parenting, in my marriage, in my job, in the way I spend money, the way I spend time. It's all for you. Why? Because you gave your life for me and you've breathed life into me. That's the purpose of knowing him is that I'm going to glorify you. Okay? Last thing on this, I'll just read a couple of scriptures. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart, I've got my sonic cup here, I'll do some advertising. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. You hear that? The king's heart, the president's heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So again, I'm back on that hammock going, you're in control, God. I got nothing to worry about. I can trust you. And I know it's not really going to get better before you come back. So I'm just going to live on mission, making much of you, Jesus. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm called to. The last thing, Philippians 3.20, says something about our citizenship, doesn't it? You're a citizen of the United States. Paul would tell you, he was writing, he dealt with a lot of, a lot of junk and a lot of problems in his life. But he would say this. He remembered this. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your citizenship, although you live here, and it sure looks like in this life that you're living, this is all there is, you need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded that I am, I'm just passing through. I'm just passing through. I got however much time here. I'm 49, about to be 50 in January. If God gives me another 10 years, 20 years, 30, whatever it is. Let's say I live to be 100. 100 years compared to millions and billions and trillions of years is just a whisper of time. It's a, it's a breath. It's a vapor, as James would say. No time at all. And so what's the point of living for ourselves right now? What's the point of it? God, I am here. I'm a citizen of heaven. And I'm going to live for you no matter where I go. And I'm going to turn my life over to you again and again. And again, say this morning, God, here's my life. Here's my life, God. I give it back to you. I give it to you again this morning just to say, here I am. I exist for you to make much of you, Jesus, in my life. And no matter what happens in this election or the next election, God, I can trust that you're sovereign. Your mandates have not changed one bit. I am called to what you called me to do. I, I'm, I'm to do all those things. And here I am, God. My life exists for you. The, the, the mission has not changed. It's not, it's not been thwarted. It's all the same. And so we represent ourselves this morning just to him to say, God, here I am. Here I am again. Give my life to you new and fresh. And on Monday morning, comes when you wake up and you go to work or do whatever you're going to do. You pray to him and say, God, here's my life. What are you going to do with me? What do you want to do with my life? I'm here for you. I'm, a, I'm the life of the world because you live within me. I'm the salt of the earth. Not saying in an arrogant way, God, I'm just the salt of the earth. Because you, Jesus, you live within me and you've changed my life. What an opportunity we have in days like it is right now to be those things, to be salt and light, 
to be the light of the world and to see that for what it is. It's not for the professionals. It's for you, people who know Jesus and have been changed by him. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get to the second message now. Chapter 5. I will tell you this on this scripture, and I'm, I'm, I went a little longer than I expected to, but that's normal for me. Uh, so Kyle's going to have to flag me down and say, it's time to wrap it up. Um, so Matthew chapter 5, I'll tell you, is one of the, the most uh, significant passages in the Bible. Of all the sermons that were ever preached in the Bible that we know of, obviously Jesus, he's the best, right? He is the best. And when he preaches in this message, man, there is so much for us. You could camp out as we're doing, but you could camp out and just live your life based on what he says in this whole Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. But in these verses today, I want to tell you, um, there's something significant for us, especially in verse 20, that I hope will, in fact, remind you of it or possibly for some of us just change your life and to see Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. We had um, in our neighborhood, um, we live right over in Berry Farms. In fact, as the crow flies, we live about a half a mile that way. And when Sunday mornings when we have worship outside, you can hear the music warming up, and it's awesome. Sit back on the porch and hear the music. And so we should have more of those services outside. I love it. Um, but anyway, we had some neighbors that moved in uh, a few months ago, and they have two small children. And a little boy, he's really young, and a little girl, it's about five or six or so. And so some of you know my daughter, Brindley. Um, she's never met a stranger. And, like, she has never met a stranger. And she has more words than you can. You can't, there are no, there are not enough numbers for the amount of words. If you calculate up the number of words, the number, it's just infinity because she talks so much. So, and she can make a friend wherever she goes. I mean, she does. She, she will, we go somewhere and man, within five minutes, she's already made friends and she's hanging out and having a great time. Meanwhile, our boys are back and they just grunt mostly and don't really want to be social at all. But Brindley makes up for it. And so she met this little girl down the street. And I won't give you her name um, for a reason, but so they start kind of playing together, even though she's like half her age. And they start playing because we don't have a ton of kids on our street. And they start playing, and um, I think she picked up on Brinley's, um, her, um, her excessive sometimes use of the language in English language and lots of words going on. And um, she said, Brinley started telling her a story, and she said, hang on. Uh, how long is this story? <laughs> and Brindley got a little bit offended by this. Like, what in the world? And so, I don't know what she said to her at that point. But she continued on with her story. And just a minute or so later, the little girl said, I don't want to listen to this anymore. I'm done. <laughs> and she walked off. Can you imagine us saying something like that to an adult, Craig, if I'm talking to you and you're giving me a story and I just say, I'm, I'm done. I'm done listening to this. I don't want to listen to this anymore and I'll walk off. I would have no friends. So this little girl needs to learn. You're going to have no friends. Maybe one day if you can't listen to a story, now it's Brindley giving a long story, but man, that is a shocking statement, isn't it? Shocking statement. You know, Jesus makes some shocking statements in scripture. I mean, he made some shocking statements. And in this verse, verse 15, somebody's got to hold the Bible out for me way over there so I can actually read it because my eyes are getting so bad. Um, He says this, just look there in in chapter 5, verse 17, sorry. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Hello, okay. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever, this is pretty interesting, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to tell you, this is a transition in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look back at verse 2 on, when you get to verse 17, there is a, there's a definite switch there that happens. Okay? So I want you to think back to what these guys and all the people there, they're, what they're used to. They're used to the law. And the law was the first five books, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books. And in those five books, there's... Uh, in the law, there's um, over 600, 613 rules and regulations and things that they had to follow. And so, and then the Pharisees would live that out. And the, uh, the Pharisees and scribes, they would live this out in such a way as like, man, they are looking out for number one. They're used to hearing teaching that uh, making sure that your own needs are taken care of and making sure that you follow the rules because we're just going to follow the rules in a very legalistic I mean, you think about legalism, the Pharisees are the picture of it. You look up legalistic in the, in the dictionary, uh, it's probably going to have a picture of a Pharisee, what they would wear, because they were the most legalistic people. And so Jesus, I mean, he's teaching, if you look back at the, these, the Beatitudes and all that he's preaching there and teaching about those who mourn and those who are hunger, hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll see God, things like this. This was unlike the law, and it was unlike anything, it ever, anything they had ever heard. Okay, so, I mean, I'm sitting around, and, and Jesus, obviously, he's like the best. You know, you, you meet someone, um, you listen to podcasts of certain pastors or whatever, and some of them, man, they can, they can really, they're really good. Well, Jesus, just take it to the next level. These guys have been around, and they've been hearing the law and seeing the Pharisees teach and teach and teach, and, and more or less just keep your, you better do this, 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 and this, or, you know. It's not going to be okay. God doesn't love you as much. Kind of that kind of that mentality. And so then Jesus shows up and starts teaching very quickly, right on the scene, the Beatitudes. He talks about being salt and light. And man, they are probably thinking, man, what, what's going on here? I mean, they look at Jesus. They've been hearing guys who've been teaching all their lives and they know the law. And then Jesus shows up. And I can just imagine that and you just imagine two guys sitting there listening to him and going, man, he is really good. Like, man, he can, he can preach. Like, he is such a good teacher. Good God, he's a good teacher. Man, this guy can really shuck the corn. That's what you say about people who preach well. He can shuck the corn. This guy can really preach. And then the other one goes, he sure can. But I'm, I'm wondering, is he about to get rid of the law? Doesn't sound like the law to me. But he is good. Golly, he's so good. It's like I remember when I was at Baylor so long ago, um, we used to play intramural basketball, and I would walk in the gym, and I'm not, obviously I'm not that tall. I get that. But there are, there are a good use for guys that are my size. They handle the ball, and they pass the ball and all that. So we play intramurals, and I play against really tall guys in college. And uh, one day we played against these guys. They walked in. I remember seeing them, and I thought, man, that guy is tall. Like He's like... Eight foot tall, he's, 
And he looks like he's got some skill. And so we end up playing. And I'm telling you, one of the guys, one of the, the guards, like, yeah, he's like 6'3", something like that. He was amazing. Like, this guy, he, he should be a pro. He's so good. And then I find out later, he plays on the Baylor basketball team, starting guard, and he made the All-Southwest Conference that year. And then he played, he, was, uh, he played in 15 years in the NBA for the Charlotte Hornets and in Cleveland. And his name was David Westlake. But when I'm sitting there playing against him, and he's shaking me and, and just goes right around me, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's just like my mind was blown. Who is this guy? And those guys back then are listening to Jesus, and they're thinking, this guy is incredible. I, I could listen to him all day. In fact, I could listen to him all night and then tomorrow. I can't get enough of this guy. But it, in that such a short time, but then in that very moment, Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows that they're thinking, all this sounds very different to you. I know it does. And you're going to think that I've come to abolish the law. But I haven't. And so Jesus calls it out right there in verse 17. He says, don't you think this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to do that. In fact, the word abolish in that, um, it's not used very much in Scripture. Um, Three other times in, in Matthew it's used. And it means when Jesus says about tearing down the, the temple, um, it, it's used there. It, it literally means like um, to dis, de, destroy. I mean, it's like the Cowboys today when they play Pittsburgh. They will get obliterated. <laughs> they will. It will, it will it's, why even watch it? Why waste your time? Because unless you like watching somebody get destroyed... That's what happens. So this is the picture that Jesus is saying. I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to kick it down and be done with it and let, leave it in rubble. I did not do that. I came to fulfill it. And fulfill, the word is, the Greek word is pleru. It means to fill out, to expand, to complete. And the picture of it is, is to be overflowing, just overflowing. Kind of like my refrigerator, that piece of junk is 15 years old. We've got to get a new one. It's coming tomorrow. But the water, you put the water on and it won't turn off. So you put your cup back in there and you got to get the stop. And the water's just going all over the place. And then you want to abolish it right there. You want to kick it down. The picture, though, that Jesus says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament and the law. I came to fulfill. It's overflowing. The completion that he would bring to this is just overflowing. And, and so much that you can't contain. It just fits so together like a glove. And so Jesus, when he says, I'm coming to fulfill the Old Testament, again, shocking statement that they would think, you're going to get rid of this thing, aren't you? You're really good, but this doesn't sound anything like the, the law or the prophets or the writings, all the Old Testament, 39 books. It doesn't sound like any of that. And Jesus says, don't think that. I didn't come to get rid of it. No, no, no. I came to fulfill it, and I came to put it together. Three things about the word fulfill. He says, I can fulfill it. He did it in three ways. The first way is through the prophecies of Jesus. I talked to the students a week or so ago on Wednesday night. Kind of went through this. And I don't have time to do it this morning. But there's over 60 major prophecies of Jesus in the, in the Old Testament. 60 major ones. Um, and there was a mathematician that did a, really a group of 600 that did this. But if Jesus had just completed eight, one person had, had fulfilled eight of those prophecies, it would be one chance in a one followed by 17 zeros. 
Okay, it's, it's like a million, billion, billion, something number. You can't even get your mind wrapped around it. That was just with eight. And yet Jesus did it with more than 60 major prophecies of his coming. So it's pretty amazing when you look back and say, that's what everything that Jesus did. It gives you more confidence that Jesus, in fact, was the Messiah, is the Messiah. And again, he lives within you. It should blow your mind that Jesus did all that. Everything in the Old Testament, every single bit of it, from Genesis to Malachi, everything, it points to Jesus. You look at stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and you can just think of some obvious ones that come off your, your head. I preached a year or two ago on um, the, the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, and that when um, the first one, when, um, when Aaron, the high priest, they would have the annual sacrifice, and everybody would gather around, and thousands of people, and he would place... The sins of the people, he would kill the lamb. Jesus, it's a point, picture of Jesus, and he would put the sins of all the people for the year on the scapegoat, on the goat, and they would kick him out, out in the middle of the desert to run off. He would be the scapegoat. That's where that term came from. That whole thing was a picture of who? It was a picture of Jesus, all of it pointing to him. You look at the story of Abraham and Isaac and him sacrificing his son. And God says, I want, to, I want, to sac- I want you to sacrifice Abraham. I want you to, in fact, I want you to do something unheard of. You're going to sacrifice your own son. What? Yep, you're going to do that. And so he packs up because he's obedient and he loves God. He says, I want to please you, God. If that's what you want, we're going to do it. And so he goes up on Mount Moriah. They're on the way and Isaac's thinking, hey, where, uh, where is the, where, where's the, you know, the thing we're going to sacrifice? Uh, God will provide. God will provide, son. And they get up there. He puts him on the altar. And just as he's about to put the dagger into him, you remember the story? The angel calls out and says, whoa, 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 stop. And there was a ram in the thicket. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus. It is a picture of Jesus. And so all the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you read it in light of, it's all pointing to him. It all fits together. It fits together perfectly. It fits because it's all pointing to Jesus. And so you read your Bible differently. And when Jesus says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament, it was all those prophecies, all those that the Jews were looking for and waiting for, it all was pointing straight to Jesus, straight to him. It's an amazing thing. The second thing it fulfilled, his death fulfilled the Old Testament law for 1,500 years, day after day, week after week, month after month, and certainly year after year when the sacrifice would have to be made. Ooh. Have to do that and keep track of all your sin, just to be right in a relationship with God. There was a sacrifice that would come, and it would be Jesus who would make the sacrifice once and for all for all of us. And so Jesus says, "I'm coming. I'm pointing to something here. I'm going to fulfill all the Old Testament by giving my life for you." He says this on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to give my life for you, and I'm going to fulfill the Old Testament, the old covenant that you had, all these things you had to do. I'm pointing to that one day that I'm going to be on a cross. And I'm going to die for you and take your sin upon me once and for all. Then three, on the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead, conquer death, so that you might have a relationship with God. All that. They couldn't see it, didn't realize it, but that was exactly what he was saying. That I'm fulfilling it. I'm not getting rid of the Old Testament. I'm the completion of it. I'm the, I'm the part that makes it full. It's overflowing. It's me. I'm doing this. And can you imagine hearing that from these guys? On that, on that day when he's saying, I've come to, I'm not getting rid of it, I've come to fulfill it. The third thing, and Moses pointed to this, and oh, I forget where it is, I think it's in Deuteronomy 18, but he says, 
that there was going to be another one to come, a greater prophet than him. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, the law. He just fulfilled the whole thing. There was a greater prophet. It was always pointing to Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and teaching completely, totally, without question, fulfilled the Old Testament law. And so we have to look at the Old Testament. Anytime we read it, anytime we study it, we hear it taught, always reading the Old Testament, every book in there and going, where's Jesus in this? Oh, I see him. He's here. And it may be so obvious on some and others. It's like, oh, it's just, it's pointing to Jesus. I see it. So we read the Old Testament differently because Jesus, it's all about him. It's for him. Sometimes we read our Bible like it's all about us. And I told this example on our students the other night, and I may have shared it in here one time years ago, but we get a yearbook when I was in high school and you would get an index. The first thing you would do is you would look in the index for where your name is and Oh, I'm on page 201. Oh, there I am. Where am I on this page? And we read our Bibles sometimes the same exact way. Where am I in this thing? Where am I? And we're mistaken when we read it like that. We're in it, obviously. But the main character, the main thing throughout it is what God was going to do, redeem his people through his son who would sacrifice his own son so that you and I could have life. And so when I read my Bible, yeah, I may see myself in it, but I'm saying, man, where... Where's Jesus? Oh, it's Jesus again. He's there. He's there. It all fits together so well, so well. Verse 18, he says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. That means that little iota, that's the word um, yod, uh, yod in Hebrew. And it's like the uh, O letter, and you put a, a little at the bottom. It's that small. So Jesus is saying, hey, I have placed such a high importance on Scripture that not even the smallest little mark, the comma that you have in the law or even the New Testament is going to pass away until he comes again. None of it. And so he places such high value on the Word of God. Let me ask you, do you place high value on the Word of God? And that's a question for you to think about. When's the last time? You picked up this word this word of God and said, God, speak to me. I know this. In my life, any major, even somewhat major decision, before I go and talk to someone or figure out circumstances, what's he, what should I do here? Go to the word of God. It's his letter. It's his word to you and to me. And so when I have a major decision in my life, what do I say? God, you've got to speak to me. Speak to me through circumstances, other people, but God... Say it through your word. And so I say, God, lead me in the word. What is it you're saying? I can tell you time after time after time this has happened in my life, on bigger decisions in my life. I've said, God, show me what you want for us to do. What do you want from me? And I look at it, and it's almost like there's a highlighter that comes up, and it's like boom, boom, boom. It's there. That's his answer to me. God will not say anything through other people that he doesn't say in his word. And so anytime you have some question or something in your life, you say, I'm going to turn back to the word. The problem for us, though, is most people don't even, they don't have value this at all. They don't have any value for it. It's just a book. It sits on a shelf or it's an app on our phone that we hardly even open or we open it to keep the streak alive. But we don't read it. We don't read with others. We say we value it, but we don't. And yet this is God's living word that Jesus lives within you. It's his word to you. And to say, God, I want to value your word. I want to value it. Paul talks about this. That God, if I don't have the desire in my own heart, then I'm going to pray to God that you would give me a greater desire for your word. God, give me that. Jesus says this in here. 
that I've come to fulfill the word. It's all important. It's all part of it. And he values scripture. Let me get done here. I'm running out of time. And now I've switched the page here. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, this verse 20 should make you do a little jig, a little dance, because this is amazing. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It won't happen. You can't do it. So who did? Jesus did it for you. He went to the cross for you so that that's possible. That's the only way it's possible because he lives within you, because he lives within me. It's like, man, do the jig, do the dance, because now my righteousness, it does exceed the scribes and Pharisees. It does because he lives within me, and he makes a difference in my life. And so I don't have to do all the 613 commandments and rules and all these religious uh, legalistic regulations and rules. Now I walk in grace and I follow him and I say, God, my life is not dependent on how good I am because I can't ever do it. But my life is based on your grace of how good you are. You've changed my life. And because of that, it's not that I share my faith because I have to or because I read my Bible because I have to. It's because Jesus has come in my life and he's changed me and I begin to look like him. And it's no chore. For us to share Jesus with somebody. It's no chore for us to give generously. It's no chore for us to join him on mission around the world. To say, where can I care for orphans and widows? Where can I step into his plan? Because my life exists for him. His grace is so good. And so we sing earlier about the grace of God. We say, just praising him. How can you not as a follower of Christ? Look at what he's done. He did what you couldn't do. Your, your righteousness would never exceed the scribes or Pharisees. But Jesus is willing. He lives within us. And because of that, I have made possible, it's made possible, I can have a relationship with God. Yes. Almighty God lives within me. What a difference that makes in us. What a difference is you making in you today, right now on this Sunday morning, that Jesus could live within you. And he does for many of us. And he changes your life. Last thing, the last thing, just in Philippians, he says this. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Paul can brag and brag. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, as dog dung, is what he's saying. I count all of it as complete waste in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Man, that is so powerful. Paul says, I can't gain the righteousness from the law, but it's only through Jesus. And it's receiving that gift of saying, I receive you. And I changed my life. Changed my life. My life is yours. That's what it's all about. It's not about the law. It's about Jesus. Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. This whole thing is all about him, pointing to him. And your life and my life should be changed by it. 
I just want, as I wrap up and just close, some of us in here, I'm going to make the assumption that a lot of us in here know Christ and we've been changed by him. I would also say, I would be foolish, look at me, I would be foolish to think that everybody in here knows Christ, that you've truly been changed by him. Um, I know Jesus, not in an arrogant way to say that. I know him and I've met him and I still got a long way to go. But I'm like Paul, I want to know him. Even though I've been walking with him for years and years, there's still so much to know of him, to be changed by him, to be look like him, to get sin out of my life and strive for purity. Some of you, though, may not know Jesus. You've never truly been changed by him. We're going to be up here this morning. Kyle will be here. Matt, um, I'll be here. Would love to just have a conversation with you just to, to show you the path of just beginning a relationship with Jesus. And so if you're in that position this morning, then please come talk to me. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for, um, how can we say that? It's just so foolish to even say we're grateful. Just, we, that's the only thing we know to say, God. We're so grateful for Jesus and for the plan that was put out from Genesis 1 all the way, God, through Revelation. It all was pointing to Jesus. The redemption of mankind would be through Jesus. And God, to know that we have the opportunity when there are billions of people around the planet right now who don't even know your name. Yet we have Bibles all throughout our house. And God, sometimes we don't ever pick those up or read it. But God, we have the opportunity. We've heard the message of the gospel and it's changed our lives, God. Thank you for Jesus and just the story in the, in the Sermon on the Mount that you came to fulfill. You didn't get rid of it. You're not abolishing the old law. The Old Testament, you, you came to fulfill it. And you are the Messiah. And you live within us, God. I pray it would change us. God, not one-time event, but God, even this morning and tomorrow morning as we open your word on Tuesday morning, all throughout the week and next Sunday, God, that you would just help us to desire your word, help us to desire you and let you, God, you're by your spirit that you would change our lives, Lord. God, we love you so much. God, let our lives demonstrate just how much we love you by the way we live it. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things real quick. Um, Tonight, we have... Um, our monthly prayer night. Look, the reality is, Ryan normally does this, but the reality is that many of you, or I say this, not many people come to that. I don't get it. I, I've never got it. I'm not trying to put any guilt on anybody. That's a time for us to pray, and it is a special time. We pray and lift up the request of our church body, and it's at what time, Kyle? Five. It's five o'clock. It's about an hour. And join us in that. That's part of that relationship with Jesus I'm talking about, saying, I want to know you. I'm going to gather with the saints and pray to a God who lives within us and who hears our prayers. So at 5 o'clock, do that. And then at 6 o'clock, David, is that right? 6.30, re-engage. Tammy and I went through re-engage. Um, I, you know, right before we went through re-engage, I thought, well, we have a good marriage. She said, I could be better. I'm like, well, it can be better. Okay, your marriage, no matter how good it is, it can always be better. You don't have to be really struggling to go to that. I mean, you can be in the greatest position. I mean, what encouragement you would be to other people who would be there as well. So it's an open group tonight at 6.30 right here. and would love for you guys to join us for that. It's a powerful uh, ministry that we have in our church. So thank you guys for leading that. All right, that's all I got for you. Love to talk with you if you can. Thanks for being here and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. 
We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.